Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Please follow along with me as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that we can sing it as well with our soul. Why? Because it's the name of your son, Christ, who we claim. It's in him that we find forgiveness of sins and a relationship with you. And so that's why we can declare it as well. Fathers, we go to the text today. We ask that you would guide our hearts, our eyes, our ears, Lord, uh, the distractions of this past week, thoughts of what lies even this afternoon or, or tomorrow, Lord, help us to block all of that out and allow your word to speak to us as you promise it will. Father, guide us as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to First Peter chapter 4. Uh, this is our journey through this little epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. The good news is we're not done with Peter. Once as we complete 1 Peter, we're going to go into 2 Peter, and we'll also do Jude, which should take us through about the month of May, yes, of 2023, not 2027. But we're, we're moving along, which is just dynamite as we study the text. As you turn there, Open Doors, a ministry to persecuted believers, stated that last year 5,621 Christians were killed because of their faith. The numbers of nations where Christians endure persecution has nearly doubled. It was 40 in 1993. It is now 76 countries. And overall, the number of Christians under high levels of persecution has risen to 360 million. That's one out of every seven Christians. Or if you're in Asia, it's two out of every five. Wow. You say, well, we're not currently facing imprisonment or a firing squad. That's true. But we are facing times of ridicule, slander, loss of jobs, or possibly legal ramifications. Just this last week, I was looking in the news, Tony Dungy was dubbed a right-wing extremist because he attended a March for Life event. David Zinn, a sports editor for The Nation, stated of Dungy, he's an anti-gay bigot, a man who doesn't care, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm done with Tony Dungy. American schools, 
They're firing teachers such as Vivian Garrity at a Jackson Memorial School in Maslin, Ohio, just this past year because she objected on religious grounds to use pronouns that did not ally with the student's sex. And she based that on her religious beliefs. Ivan Profervoff, if I say his name correctly, the defenseman for the Philadelphia Flyers this past week abstained from pride festivals before a hockey game where he would have to, been to require a pride, to wear a pride-themed jersey. And he said, I respect everyone's choices, but my choice is to stay true to myself and to my religion. Canadian media commentator immediately responded and slammed Ivan, responding, nothing scares me more, listen to what he says, than any human being who says, I'm not doing this because of my religious beliefs. That's the world we live in, and some of you are shaking your heads because you go, yes, I know. I didn't get the promotion because I stood for what is right, or I lost my job, or perhaps at school, you're, you're, you're not in the in crowd because you won't laugh at the certain jokes or go to the certain parties. The list goes on. Suffering isn't foreign to the church, and it's, it's seen clearly in First Peter. In fact, if you take the tapestry of First Peter and turn it over, one of the major threads woven through this garment or this rug is suffering. It is a major theme. It occurs four times. We saw it in chapter one. We saw it in chapter three. We're going to see it in four, and we'll see it at the end of five. There are at least 10 admonitions to his readers, Peter gives, to, to endure under suffering. 10 in this little epistle of only five chapters. And so we see that they're undergoing this suffering, and Paul or Peter weaves this together in his response theologically. He doesn't tell them how to avoid persecution. Instead, he tells them how to endure persecution. And in this next several verses, which we're going to study this morning, and and I love this passage, because he says, in the midst of suffering, he calls for the believers to rejoice. He exhorts us to examine our lives, and he calls for us to trust in the Lord's will. So let's look at verse 12. He starts off, dear friends, and if you say, that sounds familiar, yes, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, dear friends. Chapter 2, verse 11 started us into this whole section of the epistle, and now he's wrapping it up. And, and so if you're saying, ah, this sounds familiar, correct, because he's going to draw us back to many of the themes that he's been weaving through this letter. In fact, I would argue verse 12 through 19 takes us all the back, way back to chapter 1. Now, I know it's been a long time since 1. We had turkey for Thanksgiving. We had Christmas dinner, uh, red velvet cake if you had a birthday. So go back to chapter 1, and let's look at verse 6. He says, Peter says, to, remember, our audience, remember they're exiles. They're marginalized. They have endured ridicule. They've endured uh, misrepresentation, ostracization. They've lost their jobs. Sounds familiar. It doesn't appear that they're being executed for their faith at this point. But they certainly are suffering. And it's interesting to the people that Peter's writing is the same people that Paul engaged. This is modern Turkey. And we know from the book of Acts, Paul suffered dearly for the the cause of Christ as he went from town to town. And Peter's writing to some of the same people. And Peter says, this brings you great joy. What's this? 
that although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold. And he says this brings praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That which was stated in the opening of the letter, he's woven through, we saw it in two, we saw it in three, and now we see it here in four. And the reference to dear friends, go back to chapter four, verse 12, ties this together. It also, by the way, says, I understand. Don't you love it? We're in this, (laughs) Peter's saying, I understand about persecution. I've been imprisoned, trust me. Uh, And and I've been ridiculed for my faith, and, and we're in this. And you're my fellow brethren, And so he says, you're not alone. And then in this section on rejoicing, if you're following along in your notes, this chapter's verse 12 12 through 14, he's going to talk about rejoicing. Notice it's mentioned several times, verse 13, rejoice in the degree that you've shared in the sufferings of Christ so that in the end you may rejoice. You see all this tied together. And what he does in this section is he gives us, it's similar to the Jeopardy game. Uh, where I'm going to give you four answers, but they're really answering four questions. And the first of these, if you're following in your notes, is the, that suffering is inevitable. That's the first thing he highlights. Notice what he says in verse 12. A trial by fire is occurring among you. And he says, don't be astonished at this. Don't think this is strange. You've not entered the twilight zone. This was known. He, he says this fiery ordeal. That's an interesting term. It, it's used of Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it's used of, of judgment, but it, it also can be seen as a refiner's fire. And it's interesting in the Qumran literature, in Greek's translation of some of the documents, fiery ordeal is used for the end. What's what is waiting for us as we wait for the coming of the Messiah? It's the trial of the end times, so to speak. And he says, this is the fiery ordeal, the refining fire that's occurring in your midst. And he says, you shouldn't shouldn't be astonished. As if it's it's something foreign. It's interesting. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Because he uses the same term. He says, so they are astonished, that is the world, when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness. So they're astonished that you won't join them, and we as believers are astonished that they should persecute us, right? It it, it is surprising. You, You think, why shouldn't the world love Christians? I mean, we're supposed to be nice and kind, and, you know, we're supposed to love one another. I remember the first time I had some classmates in high school make fun of my faith I was really taken back I, I thought what what am I to you what threat is that to you and the worst part was they attended our youth group <laughs> uh, yes that's a whole other story um, we are, it's, 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 I think it's easy to forget that no we live in a in a world that's very hostile First John 3 says, do not be surprised, brothers. And it's a different word for surprise, but same idea, that the world hates you. Second Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may, will. Suffering is simply a responsibility, in other words, of being a family, a member of a family, in the family of God. You know, I think about, we live in an age that's been a bit of an anomaly as a church, living in the United States. We've not had 
persecution as seen throughout church history and throughout the rest of the world. Now that's changing, sadly, but for the last 200 years, it's, it's unusual. And why is it astonishing? Because one, it's not how we understand how this world should be pre-fall, God's created order. Suffering and death were for it. It shouldn't be part of the equation. And so the answer is inevitability of suffering. What is the question? The question is, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) Right? I'm suffering for my faith, Peter. You can hear the audience. Have I messed up? What's going on here? Is this right? And Peter's only echoing what Jesus told his followers in the upper room in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, and the assumption is in the Greek, and they will, know that it has hated me before it ever hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you're not of the world, you don't laugh at their jokes, you don't engage their inappropriate behaviors, etc., etc. They're going to hate you. I chose you out of the world, and they hate you. Then Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of, here it is, my name, which we're going to see later in the text. And so Peter's just echoing what his Savior said. Peter was there when Jesus gave those words. <laughs> and they, they've, they've been bouncing in his skull, his cranium, for some time. And the Spirit recalls what Christ told Peter and the gang and so the question is am I doing something wrong no Peter says suffering is inevitable for the believer it's it's what we would expect now Jesus gives a promise in chapter 16 of John after delivering that bombshell saying oh that's a that's an exciting thing to know (laughs) follow you and the world hates us he says but I say these things to you this is what Jesus tells them that in me you may have peace how ironic Right? In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the first thing that we see is that suffering is inevitable, and Peter wants his readers to know that. Secondly, in verse 13, he tells us that we have fellowship with Christ in the suffering. Notice verse 13, but rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. Now, sufferings of Jesus has been highlighted several times if you recall, in our study of this little epistle. 1.11, The question, though, that is, gives us that answer is, does the Lord really know what I'm encountering? So the first question is, am I doing something wrong? And the second is, does the Lord really understand? I mean, does, does he know this? And Peter says, ah, <laughs> oh, yes, he does. The answer is Yes. Our Savior has gone before us. He can relate. Jesus is with us. We have the opportunity to enter in with him. This week, I had computer problems. It's an abomination of desolation. I wanted to cast out the spirit of my computer into the trash bin. And I was talking to someone, and they said, Well, you know, I I only use my computer for emails. Can't you use your phone? (laughs) So I had to repent of that, too, because there were thoughts that were very ugly. Um, They were going to go with the computer. 
and I called another friend and he said, you know, I am so sorry. I had a similar situation last week. This is awful. And he said, I, I can relate. You know, that was a great comfort. Oh, it didn't fix my computer. But I had someone who said, yeah, I can relate. I understand. And we have someone who can relate. And it's, it's more than that. We also have the opportunity to know Christ through the suffering. That's that fellowship that Peter's talking about. Paul mentions this in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Wow. That fellowship is, is becoming like him. One, one fellow writes, the suffering Christian must always remember that he, she, has a suffering Christ. That is so important. We enter with Christ's suffering. We have a Savior who can relate. He knows. And so the question is, Lord, do you understand what I'm going through? Oh, yes, he does. And he's right there with you. What a comfort. Right? And to, and to the, this audience, he says, listen, the readers, Peter says, listen, suffering is inevitable. Secondly, you enter the fellowship with Christ. Here's the third answer on the board, and that is a glorious future. The latter part of verse 13 says, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice. So what is the question here that's being answered? And that question is, the difficulties that I'm going through, is this all there is? <laughs> you know, I, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel being ridiculed for my faith is no fun. It wasn't fun when you're 13. It's not fun when you're 93. You know, and you're in this mix and you're like, I, I don't like this. And you can hear that from the readers. And Peter says, oh, but there is something that waits. This is so glorious. You got to hang in there. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. <laughs> Rejoice. It occurs in several forms. In just these two verses, you can see it four times. He says, rejoice. Rejoice in what's happening and rejoice that you're, there's a day coming when you will be glad because you're in the presence of the one who goes before you. There's several important implications here if you're writing these down. The first of these is the greater the suffering, suffering I would argue, the greater the joy. The greater the suffering, the greater the joy. The implications are here. You stand for Christ in your faith. You go through these things. The Lord is going to honor. And your in intimacy with him grows. And the rewards that await. Second implication, the Lord is not going to replace suffering with glory. Rather, he will transform our suffering into glory. That's key. That's what Peter had a problem with back in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, I, I, I'm going to suffer. And Peter said, oh no, you, you can't do that. <laughs> and Christ says, oh Peter, you, you don't understand. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. You want to study this week? Look at that throughout the Old and New Testament. It's key. It's seen. And there's this idea of a postponed pleasure. I mean, you're going to try out for the varsity basketball team, you're going to work hard over the summer. You're going to practice your dribbling, your shots, etc., from all angles, right? So that you won't be cut from the varsity basketball team. And we have something far better than the varsity or the NBA. 
that which awaits is even greater. Romans 8, and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And there's one other implication. Did you catch it? It's temporary. The suffering is just for the time being because there's a glory that awaits. In other words, this, this isn't going to go on forever. You're putting up with the A who's and, and all that you endure. No, no, no. There's a day coming when we'll be in the, in the presence of the Lord. So suffering, it's inevitable. We see the fellowship with Christ and the suffering, the glorious future. He's not done because notice what Peter states in verse 14. If you're insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests on you. He says, if you're insulted, here it's ridicule, verbal abuse, which further indicates, you know, again, it's, it's like that phone conversation on Charlie Brown. He, he, Charlie Brown says something, then you hear, wah, 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 wah. So we're trying to piece this together, but if you piece it together, you know they are being ridiculed, that there's being verbal abuse based on the term that's used here. But Peter says, you are blessed. He said this in chapter 3. You are blessed. And the blessing is not <laughs> the suffering, nor is it the potential for character improvements. We see here, what is the blessing from? It's from the presence of God in the midst of the suffering. And, and so what is the question here? Is where is God? The where of God is seen, oh, he's there and he's blessing us. Notice he quotes from Isaiah 11. He says, the Spirit of God rests on you there in verse 14. That is a very unusual text. To, uh, that's a messianic text. That's referring to the Messiah, the root of Jesse, and the Spirit of God rests upon you. And Peter takes it and he applies it to believers. And you're, you're going, wait a minute, that seems, that seems a little inappropriate, Peter, isn't it? But then just think of Paul... Saul on the Damascus road. Remember in Acts chapter 9 verse 4 the Lord says to Saul why do you persecute the church? No. Why do you persecute me? What I think Peter is saying here and what we see in Acts 9 is this union that we have with the Savior and via the role of the Spirit who allows us to enter, in, to engage, and to walk in fellowship with the Lord Almighty. The resting of God's glory. That phrase is used in the Old Testament to refer to the Shekinah glory that rests in the Holy of Holies, which is an embodiment, a manifestation, really, of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is the Holy Spirit, which did that, rests on you as a believer. God's glory is on you. And what comfort in the midst of suffering? He said, no, this isn't just fire insurance, not the joy that you'll have just in the future, which is great. But in the midst of it, you have the spirit of the Lord, just as he did on the Messiah. Even in the midst of suffering, he was with him. He rests on you, the spirit of glory. I love it. In fact, he says in verse 17, starting with the house of God, that's a phrase used at the temple. And what are we? Paul mentions this, uh, that we are being built together in a dwelling place for the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And so, 
we see some huge ramifications here or implications, don't we? First is, there's a continual presence of the Spirit on Christ followers. Notice the word rest is in the present tense. It is ongoing. This isn't you, you have the Spirit when you need it. No, it's an ongoing presence for those who claim the name of Christ. One scholar writes, their present sufferings, far from being an indication of God's abandonment, which is the question you would want to ask. Like, where are you, Lord, in this? No. Uh, he says, no. Or of the failure of the hope promised in Christ's resurrection are, in fact, another indication that Christians are the new temple of God on which the Spirit rests. So it's ongoing. Second implication, glory isn't just reserved for the future. It's also for the present this is how martyrs can sing praises to God as they are going up in flame. How can you do that? You read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and you, you read these saints of old who, you know, singing it is well with my soul as they're pulling out their fingernails. How can they do that? Spirit of God that dwells on them. You, lose, you talk to folks who lost their job because of their faith. How, how can they still sing praises to the Lord? Because the dwelling of the Spirit's on them. And they understand the implications that, one, suffering it is inevitable. And so the question is, have I done something wrong? No. It was expected because you're a Christ follower. Question two, does the Lord know what I'm encountering? Yes. In fact, he allows you to join him in the suffering. Question three, is the suffering all there is to the Christian life? Oh, no. No, no, no. The glorious future awaits for those who endure the suffering. And question four, where is the Lord in the midst of this? Uh, the present blessings that come because the Spirit dwells on his people. So he answers the first part of here of rejoicing and suffering. It's begging the question, though, how then am I to operate in the midst of the suffering? And that leads us to the second part, starting in verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, criminal, or a troublemaker. The implication is, why am I suffering it needs to be asked. I had a, a young student who came to the office. He said, I, I'm just really suffering for the faith. Life is awful. You know, it just, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm struggling. He went on all of these things. And you realize he wasn't suffering for his faith. He was living in sin. <laughs> That Peter's talking about suffering for faith, not for sin. In fact, he's trying to qualify that. He said, if you're a louse, you're going to suffer. But that's not the kind of suffering we're addressing here. He says, for those that are murderers, thieves, criminals, the last word's very interesting. It's extremely vague. It, it, troublemaker is how the Net Bible translates it. You might have wrongdoer. It could be translated embezzler, a defrauder, or someone who just is a busybody it all kind of is tied into one nonetheless it's, it's not a something you need to be suffering for <laughs> right and that's what he's saying he says instead in verse 16 if you suffer as a christian wow that's a great term it's only used three times in the entire new testament here's one of them do not be ashamed what's a christian it's someone who follows after christ he, he says do not be ashamed in other words you should be ashamed of verse 15 those activities not this but glorify god that you bear such a name failure to stand strong 
for your faith is failure to glorify the Lord's name. Suffering because of the name of Christ brings him glory. Suffering because of unrighteousness brings disgrace to the name of Christ. I love Hebrews 11 because the text tells us the Lord is not ashamed to be called our God. And I dare say we, at least there's times when it's hard to, to, to use the name of Christ as a follower. It's, it's awkward. It's, it's difficult at times when all those insults are being hurled or, you know, the implications. If, if you say, yeah, I, I follow after Jesus and then all of a sudden you're not part of the gang. The Lord is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to be called our God. And that, to me, is very convicting and also encouraging. And he says in verse 18, Peter says, And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly? The Lord starts with his own. And now there are a few things here we must observe that Peter does not say. This is what he doesn't say. First of all, he's not saying that Christian deserves oppression or that they uh, should be forced to endure this suffering as if it was deserved. He's not saying that. Nor is he speaking here uh, about eschatological judgment. That is what's going to be on the unsaved, which we'll get to in a minute. I don't believe he's referring to the saved. And third, we need to be careful with the phrase, if the righteous are barely saved, it would seem somewhat to suggest that some people are more difficult to save than others. <laughs> and you may say, well, yes, I know. I eat dinner with them on Sundays. I, I don't know. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's referring to is the gate is narrow and oppression is real. And the call to persevere is hard. And that's the call here. So what is Peter saying here in verse 18 as he quotes from Proverbs First of all, he's saying the hope of vindication is no free ticket to living a pure life. You can't, oh, the Lord will deal with the ungodly. I'm set. The Lord is with me. Boom. He's saying, no, 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 no. You, you still are called because you have to account for your actions. Secondly, it doesn't exempt us from loving our enemies. Now, careful here. What are we to do with those who persecute us? Pray for them. This is especially true when we understand what awaits those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. Because notice what the text says. What will become of the ungodly and sinners? They'll be judged. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, one, you don't have the peace we've talked about. You don't have the joy. You say, well, yeah, but I don't want the suffering. Well, then you miss intimacy with our Savior. And you miss all that we've just talked about. Instead, the only thing you're looking to is judgment. You say, well, that's harsh. It's harsh not to respond to what God has graciously given us, and that is his son, for forgiveness of sins. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, if it was fair, we'd all be judged. <laughs> that God should see anyone come to know him as his Savior is gracious. And so we see here a reminder to us as believers, there is an eternal judgment that waits. We cannot dismiss it. We cannot lose sight of it. Earlier we were told to enter into the, the pleasures of Christ's sufferings and here I would argue we're to enter into this understanding of not envying the oppressor but being concerned and praying 
asking the Lord to work. So he identifies not what is just the nature of suffering, but, but how we're to engage in the midst of suffering. And then he closes with a glorious promise in verse 19. Some commentator says it is the apex, the verse of the entire letter. Notice what he says. So then, let those who suffer, you readers, according to the will of God, that's loaded Entrust your souls, he says, to a faithful creator as they do good. There's no doubt this verse in many ways summarizes the teaching of the entire letter. It's a note of assurance. It's a note of peace. And he says, entrust your souls. It's the same phrase used of dying Jesus when it says he entrusted himself to the Father. One scholar writes, it's a very graphic term used for the entrusting of something valuable to someone for safekeeping. In the midst of the suffering, it's so easy to want to guard our soul so we're not hurt. So that we don't have those darts thrown at us. And he said, no, no, no. That's not your job. You give it to the Lord. And all the benefits that come. And why? Because it's part of God's plan why would god allow suffering i mean couldn't we talk about this <laughs> i mean you're the sovereign god you're the all-powerful one which you're going to see here in a minute you've been called the creator uh, and you're a loving god why would you allow suffering well peter's been highlighting this from the start of chapter one one is it demonstrates the genuineness of your faith are you really in well let's test that two it's a means for spiritual growth that was verses 6 and 7, which we read at the beginning of the sermon. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know who he is. German pastor who stood up against the Nazi regime, executed one month before World War II ended. He writes, suffering is a way to freedom. In suffering, liberation consists in being allowed to let the matter out of one's hands into the hands of God. By breaking us down, unraveling us, suffering reveals the futility of our own efforts and activities. Suffering forces us to relinquish our own agendas and projects, making us available for Christ's call in God's own work. Wow. It, the genuineness of our faith, a means for growth, and a witness for the Christian life. Seven times Paul will exhort the believers in this little letter Stand fast, grow in your faith. Why? Because the world is watching. For instance, in 2.15, he says, don't give them a, a, an opportunity to accuse you. It will show the ignorance of their accusations. 3.16 says, you need to put persecutors to shame by walking in righteousness. And in 4.4, they are taking notice. In fact, they are astonished that you would walk in holiness. I love the Puritan writer Henry Smith makes this comment. God examines with trials. The devil examines with temptations. And the world examines with persecutions. They're watching. And, and we need to stand fast and trusting to the Lord. And the Lord has willed this to a, and I love this, to a faithful creator. This is the only time in the New Testament God is called the creator. Oh, there's references to him creating. 
the God of the heavens, and so forth. This is the only reference to him as creator. I've thought long about this this past week. Why? Why, why would Peter, wouldn't you think you'd call him the Lord of our salvation or the loving God we trust, uh, the faithful judge, but the creator? But think about it. He was there before time began, and he will be there when it ends and beyond. He created time. He set his plan in motion. He is the all-powerful, the sovereign one who guides, governs all events, and directs everything to his appointed goal, his glory. He is good. He makes provisions for a world that has been tainted by sin. He is our Lord. We are his creation. No. What a glorious thing to call him our creator. In the midst of suffering when at times you wonder, Lord, what's your plan here? <laughs> Are you in charge? Do you not see? And the answer is yes. Because I created all this. I'm before time. I'm in time. I'm there with you through the Spirit. Because I am the God of the universe. I am the great creator. So what a wonderful way to end the book. And then he says, and so do good. That's also only found here in the entire New Testament. When they do good, they should trust God to protect their lives from danger. Peter's saying two things. First, entrust your lives to God, for he is faithful, and you will be saved. Second, be sure always to do good. Stand fast. Stand fast in the midst of it. Well, there's some application there in your notes. Let me give you three of these. First of all, our identity in Christ forms the basis for how we view suffering. Think about it. The reason our conduct is acceptable to God in suffering is through Christ. The reason we have joy in our suffering is because of Christ. The basis for our hope in the midst of suffering is found in Christ. And the rationale for endurance for suffering is because of Christ. Quoting Bonhoeffer again, discipleship is being bound to the suffering Christ. That is why Christian suffering is not disconcerting. Instead, it's nothing but grace and joy. <laughs> that comes from a guy who was in the U.S. but went back to pastor the church in Germany. <laughs> he didn't have to do that. He already had an exit. In fact, he was in Britain as well. But no, he returns to stand fast for Christ in the midst of a world that needed to hear the good news, who needed a shepherd. And what a day it'll be when we see our suffering Christ, the one who suffered for us, gave us this incredible opportunity to suffer with him. The old hymn, Face to Face. I love the, the one verse. It says, What rejoicing in his presence when our banished grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain face to face i shall behold him far beyond the starry sky face to face in all his glory i shall see him by and by isn't that great that's our lord secondly the purpose of our endurance in terms of suffering is to reinforce our faith it's and to refine it job 23 but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold, which Peter highlights in chapter 1. In fact, it's far better than any gold 
24 karat otherwise. Let me challenge you this week. If you're facing someone at school, a teacher, perhaps a classmate, someone at your work, your boss, or perhaps even a family member, spend some time first rejoicing. You get to share in Christ's suffering. Then let me encourage you to find a fellow believer who can pray specifically for you in your situation. Pray for me, all right? Pray that we stand strong. Second, I'm going to challenge you, pray for those who persecute you. That's not so easy, but we're called to do that. When's the last time you've prayed for the leader of North Korea? Or perhaps your boss? Third, we need to pray for those who are undergoing persecution. You say, well, I'm not sure all that's happening. Well, there's some great ministries out there. There's Open Doors. There's Voice of the Martyrs. These are just two that keep you abreast of, of situations around the globe and how we can be praying. You, you saw the, uh, the fellow who's left an alternative lifestyle as a believer in Malta and could face imprisonment and fines. It's just this week. It was in the news. We need to be informed, not just overseas, but local, state, and federal levels. And I would challenge us uh, to give financially to such people as the Alliance Defending Freedom or Open Doors. These agencies who are, are trying to, to, to come alongside those who are suffering for their faith. And finally, as Christ followers, we have an audience of only one. Careful. One thing that Peter has echoed, I think, several times is it doesn't really matter what people are saying. What matters is what the Lord sees. Deuteronomy 13, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What was the problem with the Israelites? They got their eyes off the Lord. They wanted to acclimate to their society, their culture, so they picked up a Baal and an Ashtaroth and some of the other local gods and deviated. It isn't fun being ridiculed, mocked, ostracized, or even losing a job. For acceptance, social relevancy, even maybe wanting to be grace-centered, we're afraid to stand for our faith and exalt the name of Christ. Similar, I think, to the medicine we try to give our kids, we repackage the gospel, we smash the message in a jar of social applesauce and hope it can be digested. <laughs> the gospel does not need our assistance. The gospel cannot be diluted. It cannot share center stage with anything else. Because once the gospel's removed, where is the hope? It's found in the name of Christ. We, the church, cannot compromise the truth, nor should we fear the world. Our allegiance is to the Lord. Perhaps this morning, it's time to reclaim the name of Christ. Oh, you're a follower of him, but oh, no one would know it. <laughs> You've taken the path of least resistance for a long time, whether it's work or it's school, in fact, some of you teens, listen up. <laughs> Do your classmates know you're a follower of Christ? No, you don't have to have a, you know, a study Bible you're taking to class. But do they really know that you follow after him? Or you just kind of faded into the woodwork? 
People are standing up for all sorts of crazy things today. May we be standing up for Christ. May we be known. And it's so easy, isn't it, to start to compartmentalize. And we can't do that in our faith. So let me challenge you. Vodi Bauckham made this statement, and it is dynamite. Suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Wow. And he's right. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. In it, we read of these promises. And Lord, we find answers at times of questions that pop up, especially when we're suffering for our faith. Ones of, is this really true? <laughs> Where are you in the midst of it? Do you understand how hard this is? And you've already answered all of those questions. You've told us that suffering is inevitable because the world hates you. But you've told us in the midst of that, we get to share in your suffering, your son's suffering. We have the joy of what lies before us, but also the joy in knowing that your spirit dwells among us. And in your divine sovereign will, you have set this all in motion. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the joy that we have now, but oh, the joy that comes in the future. And may we be found worthy followers of you, Christ bearers, heralders of your name. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, we pray.